Have you ever really stopped to consider the weather and the implication that the weather might have on the way that society operates? But what if we were wrong about the weather? What if our preconceived notions don't actually fit reality? That's exactly the case that I'd like for us to talk about today. Another case of imagined heathenry. But in this case, imagined weather. back I talked about imagined heathenry. It was an episode that I enjoyed talking about. It was about how we have the modern issue of the imagined past taking priority over the real past. But in it I ended up talking about really only a single issue. How we have the perception of heathenry as primitive, violent, or hypermasculine. These being the result of the ancient Christian fantasy of what heathenry was and what Vikings were. Ultimately, though, it leads some modern pagans to live out fantasies rather than real, truthful reconstructions. And for most of those, they don't even know that they're doing it. They think that they're doing it as a proper and correct reconstruction. It warps our understanding of the past, and it warps our understanding of our religion. Today I've decided to revisit a topic that I wrote a little bit about on my blog, but here in a more verbal form. The topic is, in essence, a different kind of imagined heathenry. In this case, the imagined climate of Norse mythology. And by this, I intend to examine the actual climate. <laughs> by that I mean the weather. So to get started, I'd like for you to do some imagining for me. If you want to, maybe you can close your eyes. But it's not strictly necessary either way. I like to imagine with my eyes closed. But I want you to imagine the ancient Norse landscape. Like some sort of Bob Ross painting that you're painting with your mind. What trees are there? What do they look like? What species are they? Paint the forest in the background, or if there aren't trees, paint it what it's like. What's the weather like? The clouds? What season is it? What's the temperature like? I want you to imagine this landscape. Paint it for me with your mind. What is this Norse, Nordic landscape like? And now I would like for you to populate your imagined landscape with people. Imagine the people that have to live in this place. What are they dressed like? What do they need to be wearing for the weather there? And now I want you to imagine their outlook on life having been shaped by that environment in which they lived. Now once we have that imagined for me, I want you to take that imagined reality and I want you to consider it. And that's really what we're going to weigh against reality for the moment. 
if you are like me, or at least as I was a few years back, you might have envisioned a cold, frigid land, a land that in essence shapes the people that live there. And there's a lot of media that reinforces this image as well. Perhaps you might imagine it like, say, Skyrim, where the Nords live in the Elder Scrolls game. Or perhaps you'll picture it like that in the backdrop of the Vikings TV show. Or perhaps you'll imagine it like the Assassin's Creed Valhalla game. Or maybe you're just a little bit more grounded in reality and you picture modern Iceland or modern Norway. The weather and climate of those areas where those people that currently live there are. The unfortunate thing though is that if you pictured any of that you're sorely mistaken. There are many problems with these depictions and I'm only going to cover a single one today. Climate. The climate of ancient Scandinavia and indeed Europe in general was significantly different from any of these portrayals and very different from even today's climate. From today's standards, the Middle Ages were practically balmy in those areas. Now you might be asking me at this moment in time, but what do you mean the climate? How could the climate have been any warmer? Aren't we just now getting warmer and warmer today with climate change? Shouldn't it have been even colder then? <laughs> all good questions but unfortunately while yes we are dealing with climate change and climate instability today the ancient world was not the same as it is today or even what it was a hundred or two hundred years ago the climate has shifted since then and it has taken actually two significant shifts one getting significantly colder and one getting to the point it is today So if you're thoroughly confused, that's all right. Let's reposition and refocus. In a sense, everything you thought that you knew about the climate of the ancient world was wrong. So let's start from scratch and discuss why this is and how we know what we know. So to begin with, we have to describe what the climate was actually like. That way we can build the picture back before we discuss why it is that way. Rather than being cold, it was warm. It was warm enough that, say in Trondheim, a city halfway up Norway, and roughly equal in latitude to Iceland, well, in Trondheim, they were capable of growing wheat. In fact, evidence suggests that wheat was cultivated even north of Trondheim to in the very least 64 degrees north latitude. And if that doesn't strike you as incredible, it, it truly is. That is absolutely incredible. Because this is wheat, this is ancient wheat, in fact. This isn't our modern improved strains. This is wheat that these ancient peoples could have cultivated, and it's not rye. Rye being much more cold hardy but they were able to cultivate wheat all the way up to Trondheim. 
a feat which is not easily replicated in today's world, if at all. But for them, there was nothing special about this. It simply was. They did it because they could. There was nothing special about the ability to do it, because for them, this was ordinary. Their climate was different. And if we were to turn and look at, say, England, it was so incredibly warm in England that they could cultivate grapes. Grapes, of all things. As far north as Herefordshire, at 52 degrees north latitude, and once again, this was not our modern varieties of grapes. We've done hundreds of years trying to get the grapes to grow in different areas and adapt them. And most of the really important work has done done in the last 50 or 60 years to try and create more hardy varieties of grapes, to try and create better varieties of grapes that can grow in northern places that are going to be able to have redder reds in northern places, which was not something that was able to be done in the ancient world, especially not with ancient grapes. Now, this latitude, 52 degrees north latitude for Herefordshire, that's well north of London, and honestly, Herefordshire is also at a very different altitude. Let me put it like this. Those varieties of grapes which they grew in those times would not be able to function in those areas today. The climate is so radically different. The climate has changed since then. It got colder, and then it got warmer again, but not to the level in which it was during this particular time period. It is as if England had been turned into a wine-growing region. If we were to consider areas which grow wine today, the area which grows wine today and grows grapes for the wine production would be the southern part of France. Now that climate would have been a very close match for what the climate would have been in England at that particular time. So if we were to travel back in time to the Viking Age, England would have been balmy, warm, and would have grown grapes in great abundance. They wouldn't have struggled to grow grapes like they struggle now. Even with our modern varieties, it's a struggle to grow grapes that far north. They would have had an easy time of it. Great vineyards would have been able to have grown there. And they would have produced wine to rival that that the modern areas of the southern parts of France would be able to produce. The climate was so radically different, it's actually fairly difficult to imagine it. If we were to consider as well Scotland, in the hills in Scotland, in the vicinity of Edinburgh, they were growing crops plentiful enough that there was no clan warfare anymore. There were no needs to be met with food. They were able to suffice for all the things that they needed the people were content because they were well-fed and happy. And so this is odd. This is not what we consider to be Scotland today. Scotland is sort of cold and 
rather it's difficult to be there. It certainly isn't going to be what we would consider to be an ample growing area for food. And so what we're looking at essentially amounts to a golden age of plenty for Europe. A warm and pleasant time that was conducive for growing ample food, more than they needed. Now this time period that we're looking at is called the medieval warm period and it's a well-known and understood phenomena in history. This medieval warm period is, is fairly well documented but we don't end up talking about it nearly as much as we should. And it's not as well known in, say, the pagan community that this would have impacted how these people lived. Now, I should also note that this medieval warm period was not kind equally to everyone. The same period of warm actually ended civilizations elsewhere. In North America, for instance, there were once a people called the Tunit by the Inuits. Now we call them the Dorset culture because of the artifacts that were found in the neighborhood of Dorset. They inhabited, these Dorset people that is, they inhabited the far reaches of North Canada and they hunted seals and walruses and, and things like that. They were not hunters of caribou or reindeer. They were not farmers. They were not fishermen, particularly. And they were not whalers. They hunted seals. They hunted walruses. And they subsisted off of the large catches that they would... I'm not sure we should call them catches, but, but the, uh, the hunting of walruses and, uh, and seals. It's what they subsisted on. And they had been established there in the north of Canada in that way of life as those people since probably about 500 BCE. But the medieval warm period was so incredibly warm that the sea ice became incredibly inconsistent and it effectively collapsed their entire society. Now the reason for this is pretty obvious because of the way in which these people hunted required you to be able to, to use the sea ice in those holes that the seals make to breathe through? Well, if the seals don't have to worry about the sea ice, then you're going to have a much harder time hunting them. So these Dorset people were essentially hunting seals in the same way that a polar bear would have hunted a seal. They would have hunted walruses in the same sort of way. And they were now unable to do that because there was no sea ice. In the same way that the polar bears are having trouble today, the Dorset people began to go extinct. Now, the, them having been established in that way since 500 BCE doesn't necessarily mean that they were going to be able to stay that way forever. And they entirely disappeared at some point between 1000 CE and 1500 CE. And they were replaced entirely in their areas by Inuits who had behavioral adaptations regarding their methods of hunting and regarding their tools that gave them the flexibility to be able to succeed in this warmer climate that the Dorset culture lacked. These entire people went extinct 
during this medieval warm period because it was so warm. But that shows you just how radical a shift in this climate there would have been. These people had been there for thousands of years, and now they were not able to live in the way in which they were accustomed because the weather changed in such a radical shift that they were not able to be able to survive. But, on the other hand, for Europe, this was a warm and pleasant time. The medieval warm period would stretch from around the 800s through the 1300s. Now, these are flexible dates. It probably began slightly before and continued a little bit after. But we see that these are, you know, around the time period where this would have been. It, interestingly enough, fairly well corresponds to the onset of the Viking Age, which stretched from 793 CE through 1066 CE. So the Viking Age lasted slightly shorter overall, but it does correspond in the beginning with this. So, in a sense, just when things are looking their absolute most pleasant that they've ever looked in these areas, these people go a Viking. But it should also make us reconsider the myths and the culture in light of this climate information. In a sense, many of us have been operating on what amounts to faulty information. We have filled in the gaps of our understanding with outside information. And at this point, we really need to reassess it. This would have been the time period when a lot of the myths that we are most familiar with would have been forming, or would have been developing, or would have been changing. And there is no outrageously cold climate shaping their ideology and mythology. Quite the contrary, it was more pleasant than it had ever been before. And this warm period stretches well into Christianization, and even so long as to extend over the point in which the myths were recorded. There had been hundreds of years of Christianity by the time that Snorri and Saxo recorded their epics. But there had been hundreds and hundreds of years of pleasant temperatures well before that. Snorri died around 1200, a little bit after that actually, but he recorded his stuff in that time period. He would have lived then towards the tail end of this medieval warm period. It would have stretched hundreds of years before that point. We're looking at some substantial changes that are occurring here. and we're seeing the myths of all of these people developing within this warm bubble, as it were, all the way through to Christianization, all the way through to when these are recorded, and it has been warm that entire time, warm and pleasant and plentiful. It was only after this point that we hit what we call the Little Ice Age where things got really rough and really cold, really cold, really fast. But this warm bubble, now that is where all of our myths are really developing. 
Now, I've seen people build their worldview for heathenry, and they tend to try and understand the way that these people thought about things in their world around them, and to help understand how their myths apply to their lives. Now, often I've seen people use climate, then, as a lens by which to examine the world, and to be perfectly honest, they should. We should be examining myths through the lens of climate. It helps us understand how these people are shaped. But here's the problem. If you don't use the right lens, it won't come into focus correctly. And so when we use the incorrect lens, we're looking through this dark, cold, harsh lens. That's not what it was. We honestly need to be looking at it through the lens of this is plentiful. We have everything we need. It is warm. It is pleasant. We're able to grow surplus amounts of food. That's the world that they're living in. A world of plenty. It was more plentiful than it had ever been before. And honestly, more plentiful than it's been ever since. Now, it also happens that we accidentally do this. We accidentally insert in, even when we're not trying to. We're surrounded by media that examines the Vikings, and they usually depict them a certain way. They have them in drab colors and furs. They have them looking deliberately primitive. They have them dealing with snow and cold. But this is decidedly not true, to the extent in which it's believed to be, at least. And these depictions, they end up filtering into our collective understanding, much to the point that if, say, a game developer tried to put their Vikings in bright colors with clean braided hair, in a warm but temperate climate, with ample food being grown, well, the depiction likely wouldn't resonate. I don't think that that would be able to get published. And this is because we have an imagined reality in our culture. We're working from this imagined reality, and we have issues bridging what turns out to be an extremely wide gap between what we envision and what actually, in reality, was. Now, here's where I'm also going to point out that we're not the only pagans with this issue. In fact, every group of pagans that are part of the Indo-European group really are going to end up with the same issue. For instance, let's go to the Mediterranean. The climate of the Mediterranean, for instance, is decidedly not what it once was. If we were to put the Mediterranean into context, we're talking about Greece and Italy and Tunisia and Egypt and Israel. These are a few places that are probably somewhat familiar we know more or less what they look like. We've grown up seeing them depicted in the news and in books and in media. We, we know what they look like today. We know essentially what we imagine what they would look like in the ancient world. But the problem is, is that, once again, our imagination is wrong. And so is the modern view of what they are. The reality that exists today is not the reality that is it was in the past. Now, when we think about them today, we're thinking about them being rather dry and arid, all things considered. If I, for instance, imagine the 
climate of Italy today. It's, it's rather dry, it's hilly, has scrubby trees and bushes. But the problem is, is if I were to actually top, hop into a time machine, and if I were to travel back to 300 BCE, there would have been vast forests in Italy, and it would be wet, rainy even. Much the same in Greece, wet and forested. The ancient cultures of Carthage, Rome, Greece, and their climates today in Tunisia, Italy, and, well, Greece hasn't changed its name, uh, are far drier than the ancient world, and the temperature is different as well. So, well, what happened? If it's dry now, and it's sort of arid, and hot, but what was it like then? And how did it get this way? Well, <clears throat> there was a pleasant time period of temperature and climate there in the Mediterranean we call the Roman Climate Optimum. And it ended, interestingly enough, primarily due to human climate change. The deforestation in the area caused changes in the rainfall pattern, and that caused changes in the temperature and in everything else. We're looking at a man-made climate event that occurred before we had any clue about any of this. We're talking about something that's happening essentially before the second century CE. Now this is going to end this nice pleasant climate, the Roman climate optimum, will end about the same time as the primary conversion to Christianity began to ramp up. And Roman society began to look significantly different. They began to take this climate change, because they did notice it, began to take it as a sign of the earth itself aging and coming to an end. Now, this is one of those moments where I'd look at that and say, eschatology much? But it was believed at that time that as a person aged, they also became drier before death. So they saw a medical connection to the drying of the climate there, and they associated it with the drying of the climate that they're looking at. It was noticeable, and it's noticeable inside of their records. It's very interesting, in fact, when you look at the ancient records of rainfall and flooding, and other things that are happening there, like what crops could have been able to grow. Archaeologists marvel at the amount of crops that can be grown at different altitudes, and they were growing quite well there, and they're unable to grow there now. And they marvel at the records that talk about how often the Tiber River flooded and overflowed its banks, because in the ancient world that was not a rare occurrence. We're looking at something that was going to be going on quite frequently, in fact. But all of this changes everything. It changes where things grow. It changes what people eat. It changes the amount of food that an area is capable of growing. We're looking at significant changes here to these areas, such that when they did change, this is one of the precipitating factors for the collapse of the Roman Empire as we know it their climate no longer was able to support their needs. They had changed. 
the world had changed and it had left those people behind. And if that's not a wake-up call for us, I don't know what is. But that's besides the point. For us here, it really should change how we see every Mediterranean society in the ancient world. And it should change how we portray these areas and their cultures in media. Rome, during the times of the monarchy and the Republic, would have been far different than Italy today. Egypt, during these times, similarly, would be very incredibly different. In both cases, we're talking about wetter, greener, lusher areas. They're just not like that today. They used to be different. When we think of Egypt today, we think of sand. But it was a veritable paradise at one point in time. The climate has dried. It has changed. The rains have changed. And that's changed everything. Tunisia, very dry. It still has some lush areas, don't get me wrong, but it's still very dry. It was not always the way that it is. It used to be able to support a, a civilization that was able to rival Rome. It was lush. It was green. The people wanted to be there because it was such a nice place to live. It was a veritable paradise. And climate change. Perhaps the most extreme, though, is have you ever wondered why the Holy Land just doesn't seem to be all that it's cracked up to be? Well, that's because it dried out, too. It wasn't always like it is now. It used to be way wetter by far, greener, lusher. When we think of what the Levant should be in the, the Bible or in the Torah, it's worlds different from what it is today. Something went wrong in the climate. So how might we re-envision the Bible, or better yet, the Torah, if we looked at the stories there through a lens where the climate was appropriately set? How might we re-envision Egypt if it were lush and green, Tunisia even more so? How should we reassess the culture of Carthage? And the Norse? In the other climate model that we're talking about, the Vikings, rather than them being some brutal people whose behavior was reflected in the harsh cold of the environment, when we re-envision them with the correct climate in mind, we come to very different conclusions. These were people who were so incredibly capable of taking care of their basic needs through the extreme plenty that they were experiencing. They could afford to be able to sail off on pillaging vacations, not for want of food, but for what amounted to a desire for surplus luxury goods. And those, and those surplus luxury goods that they were pillaging were themselves reflected of the extreme bounty of the whole of Europe that was being experienced at this point in time. England could grow grapes. Scotland could feed itself to the extent that they weren't fighting. 
it was pleasant. It was warm. It was balmy. And they were experiencing unprecedented wealth and plenty. Now, all of this sort of comes down to one point. If we're building worldview and putting myths into context, we shouldn't put them into a frigid, harsh backdrop because they don't actually fit there in reality. Instead, we're going to need to reassess. We're going to need to re-envision and get back in touch with reality because in this case it would have been far more pleasant. Now I realize that this doesn't apply to everyone. Not everyone's doing these sorts of associations. But even if you aren't, imagine for me how we might change our imagined reality and reassess it and put it back in line with reality so that we know what these people were like and we know what their culture was like we know how they would have experienced the world around them. It's one of those examples, in this case, of imagined reality that impacts how we even see heathenry, how we see these ancient peoples. It is my hope that you'll have found some value in tonight's discussion that perhaps you'll have thought some new thought or something deep or perhaps you'll reconsider something that you thought was true but then found out was not quite in line with reality or perhaps you'll have just listened to listen but whatever the case may be I thank you for sticking with me I would like to give credit where credit is due First and foremost, to my 20 amazing patrons who have chosen to support me through Patreon. I know that people listen to this, but knowing that there are 20 people on the other end of that Patreon who are so willing to listen to what I have to say and to show me that support, it means a lot to me to know that there are those people, those 20 people, who are listening to what I have to say, these thoughts, and that they have found value in them. It truly does mean a lot to me. Also, my intro music is by Anton Shiloh. It's Call of Valhalla with a little bit of my horn blowing added in. Now, if you have found value in these thoughts, perhaps readjusted your worldview to accommodate a piece of reality instead of imagined fancy, then perhaps you'll think about liking this video, or perhaps you'll think about sharing it with a friend to continue this discussion because if you've thought deep thoughts through this process if you've reconsidered something if you are going through the process of trying to understand what is imagined and where does that line up with reality 
and how to reassess your worldview, then perhaps a friend will find value in this as well. So maybe you'll think of subscribing. This isn't the only thing that I talk about after all. I talk about all sorts of things. Maybe you'll find value in those things too. Or perhaps you'll like the video. Or perhaps you'll share it with a friend so that you can continue the discussion on imagined heathenry with them. But in any case, perhaps like, subscribe, share, do whatever it is that people on YouTube and podcasting do. And I hope that you tune in another time.